Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by Ajahn Sona. Chapter 3. What Benefit? Tonight I'd like to talk about the benefits of this practice with the breath. We know it is a core meditation subject of the Buddha. It's interesting. The suttas are voluminous. But when you look at any given meditation subject, it's not all that extensive. Some of these subjects, which are not so popular these days, like the color casinas, are just given very brief mention. It's only later on in the commentaries that there's an attempt to describe how to do it. Metta, for instance, takes only a couple of pages. We chanted it tonight. And the breath meditation can fit on one page. The whole of the Satipatthana Sutta and the Maha Satipatthana Sutta takes a few pages, all right, but it's a compendium or an anthology of different techniques under general headings. And you will see different versions of it. But the breath meditation itself is given a fairly brief treatment. In fact, as far as the specifics go, there's still quite a bit of debate about details, such as exactly where you're supposed to be experiencing the breath. When you attend to the breath, where exactly should you focus? How do you do it? Then, in the Anapanasati Samadhi Suttas, Mindfulness of Breathing with Deep Serenity, the first two of the so-called tetrads, four lines, so eight lines altogether, are really to do with the samadhi aspect of the teaching. And then further on in the tetrads, there's some brief discussion about how one investigates the mind during breath meditation and some insight topics as to how breath meditation eventually comes to give results in enlightenment. This is a total structure. From the beginning of watching your breath, noticing there is a short breath or a long breath, all the way to the end of the sutta, when you should be an arahant. It's a very complete teaching. Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the famous monks in Thailand, used to consider it just exactly that, a very complete teaching, fundamentally saying you don't need anything more. A lot of meditation schools will teach the Satipatthana, or the Foundations of Mindfulness, with lots of emphasis on varieties of mindfulness. But what you see in the suttas is an indication that just this single page of instructions is adequate to take you from the beginning to the end. But it's very brief. This is why we have commentarial discussions to this day about the precision, about where you should pay attention and so forth. Maybe the Buddha didn't think it was all that critical. You could probably get results if he just said, well, you know, just notice that you're breathing in and breathing out. That will be enough of an indication to satisfy the aim. It is fairly obvious by the second tetrad that the aim overlaps with the jhanas, the samadhi of the eighth factor of the path, because you have this rousing of gladness or tranquility, pasada or pasadi and then just a brief indication of further stilling of bodily formations. It's just a sketch-it-on-your-thumbnail kind of thing. Now you have to remember that at the time, the teachings were passed on orally, and people needed something they could remember, take to the forest and work out the details for themselves. 
I think it's okay that people have different styles of breath meditation. How do you know you have the right style? If you're getting the results. There are personalities that get very hung up on the precision of the technique and so forth, but I think in the end, if you get the results, that's the indication that you have understood the Buddha well enough. However, we can't always say that it's just a lack of technical understanding that is the reason why we fall short. If you're not getting the results, it might be that you can adjust your technique, but also the Buddha has instructions. If you're not getting results, you have to go back and ask yourself, am I doing the preliminaries properly? It's got nothing to do with breath. It's to do with, do I understand my motives, why I'm doing this? If my mind is misbehaving, is it the result of the environment around me? Am I putting myself in the wrong environment, associating with the wrong people? I would say in terms of environment, people are the strongest influence. Humans are designed to pay close attention to all the subtleties of other humans because our survival depends on it. We're a social animal. What happens to humans who do not have social skills? They keep having big problems. And so we are tuned into each other, and that's a very powerful influence on us. The Buddha clearly says that if you want to cultivate these more refined states, one thing that helps is to associate with people who are inclined to samadhi. There are people who seek that out, and they would seek it from someone who practices it. Just being in the company of those who are focused, serene, concentrated, is already helpful. You can pick up the association almost just by being around a person. This is the way you learn a lot of things. Then the Buddha says if you're interested in insight practices, you hang out with people who are reflecting on this. Or if you're going to be more of a scholar type, then associate with that circle. I'm saying that if you're emphasizing the importance of samadhi, this aspect of breath that precedes insight, you have to ask yourself, Am I associating with the right people in trying to learn this technique? If you just go to Vipassana, insight-type teachings or courses, it may not succeed in supporting your aspiration to pure lucidity and serenity. Now, most of you can't hang out all the time with monks that are practicing samadhi. Even monks can't hang out all the time with monks that are practicing samadhi. What are you going to do? What Dhamma talks do you listen to? The voice of another is an alternative way, and fortunately you have the media. In the stillness of your room, with a flickering candle or a light on a dimmer switch, you can listen to a talk on samadhi, the value of samadhi, the process of practicing this samadhi. That's a type of association that is going to influence your mind in that direction. You also have to, of course, establish the basis of your virtuous behavior. Virtue, sila, is not just the absence of unskillful behavior, but also the presence of skillful behavior. Visiting monasteries, being generous with your relatives, being tolerant, and also abstaining from negligent or false speech. Instead, practicing skillful and positive speech. These are all feedback loops. The Buddha is introducing something almost new in history, and that is the idea of the human as a process rather than a thing. 
The process he describes is very close to modern psychology in terms of conditioning effects. He has insight. You know, I keep suspecting he's from another planet or something, some sort of civilization that has already discovered science, because the structures he talks about, the cause and effect structures, are very advanced. At the time, there was not a lot of conviction about the reliability of patterns and laws in nature. There were a lot of other override ideas. Things happen for no particular reason. Or they had the wrong causal structures. The Buddha is incredibly insightful. It's just very difficult to understand how he got these things. There's a conditioning structure, and we have to relax around that and just use that conditioning structure. We can't directly will ourselves to do this thing. He has an insight into how crops grow and how farmers make things grow. This came very late in European history, systematic gardening and farming. It's a very late development. It actually came out of the Christian monasteries, monasteries that are a thousand square miles and they've got five or 600 men living there with not much else to do but live a quiet, peaceful life and reflect on things. And they raise their own food as well. So they start to understand how to plant seeds and work the soil, cause and effect. They see that this stuff isn't just magic. It happens by cause and effect. So the Buddha talks about how farmers get results and that it's not a random process. It's not by wishing. You don't pray to God and get the crops. You have to do the processes, the preliminary situations. He has this beautiful sutta about a farmer. The farmer goes out and says, May my crops be well. May my crops be well. Do you think the crops will be well because he wants them to be well? No, not if he doesn't water them, if he doesn't overturn the soil, if he doesn't plant them correctly. But if he does that, if he does the preliminaries, there's no need to wish, may my crops be abundant. The Buddha understands that this is a causal process, not wish fulfillment. You can't wish yourself into concentration. You can't wish yourself into enlightenment. What you want to do is just relax around that because there's a lot of stress and tension in wishing. It's very futile. Lots of people want wish fulfillment, though. They come to the monastery sometimes and ask me for secrets about how to make things appear in their life. Are there spells or something? I'm the wrong person to ask because what works is educating yourself, working hard, saving your money, things like that. That works. Putting in the right causes. And there's no need for stress or strain in this. This is something else I learned almost at the end of university, that I was a very superstitious person. I was taking philosophy, logic, and things like that. But my inner life, I realized, looking back, was superstitious. I thought that if I tried hard, I would get good marks. That's a superstition. There is no relationship between trying hard and the results you get. It was only after I started to meditate very late in my university training that I realized I'm putting some sort of melodrama into this, as if that would have a magical effect on a test paper or something. 
There's all kinds of language out there that tells you to try hard. I stopped trying hard, and I just read the stuff and did the work and got even better results. There was no wanting or trying. There was doing. You do it. There's nothing else to it. That's all you do. And that's the only thing that works. So you can let go of a lot of this tension and stress. The Buddha is saying it's not about how you hold your tongue or whether you wrinkle your brow or whether you're really sincere. If this structure of causes is put in, then this is what will result. He can say this because humans have similar structures of consciousness. There are great similarities in how we feel. This is how we have empathy for each other. We understand what it's like to be another person. The only possible way you could do that is because we are similar. So we're looking to get some airy light detachment here. And this is a process. One thing follows another, which follows another. I just need to set the time aside and go down this path of steps, and I should expect these results. My doubts and fears and worries and straining and hoping and wishing are really just unnecessary tension. So this is the proper kind of diagnosis if you're not getting the results. Go back down the path and ask yourself, am I surrounded with good people who can do this or are skilled in some way with this and are influential to me, helping me along the way? If you want to play piano, you go and sit down with someone who can play the piano. Then you should have a brief list of things to check over to make this an orderly process. Have I put in the proper preconditions? Just be a good observer of yourself. Notice the effect that people have on you, the effect of the atmosphere that you're in. You're not removed from it. At some point you will be. The Buddha is certainly detached from environmental influences. He's really aloof from it all. That would be a very masterful person who is really aloof and can actually go about in the world without losing their perfect mindfulness. Which brings to mind a story, the story of the criminal. So the king has had a report that this criminal, who has done a lot of bad things in the past, may be ready for release. And so the king tests him by saying, Well, if you can cross this fairground with a bowl full to the brim with oil, Without spilling a drop, you can go free. But if you spill a drop, there's a guy behind you with a sword, and he'll cut your head off. Now, at this fairground, it's the day when the most beautiful girl in the country dances on stage. And that draws a lot of the farm boys, who are not very sophisticated lads. They're a little drunk, spitting everywhere and so forth. Not your best audience. They can be annoying. And the most beautiful girl in the country can be quite distracting for a guy who's been in prison a while. So if you can get across this fairground without spilling the oil by either looking at the girl on the stage or getting upset with these ruffian farm boys, you go free. That's all you have to do. Cross the fairground and you're free. But there is this guy with a sword behind you, so it's very high stakes. And in the story, the criminal crosses without spilling a drop and goes free. This is life. This is you. 
You're the criminal. The girl on the stage is the attractive, the desirable, and the farm boys are the aversive. These are the two problematic things in life, aversion and desire. They are the first two hindrances, anger and greed. Aversion and desire. Both, all the way down to mild irritability and mild craving. These are what create such distress in life. The problem in life is that you keep spilling the oil. Now the sword is symbolic, but you do lose your life when you're distracted. That's how you make trouble for yourself. He's a criminal. He obviously did not have the skills to get himself across the fairground before. In the fairground of life, he ended up in prison. He's either violent or too acquisitive, stepping across the boundaries. But the story ends well, illustrating the value of a capacity for intense mindfulness in your life. It's your life. If you train your mind, you can walk across there without much problem, and you are free. You are free. The world and its effect on you falls away. And that is freedom. The decision as to where in the spectrum of positive emotions you're going to dwell is up to you then. You have the freedom to choose. Now, notice the spectrum of positive emotions where we start to arrive at stillness. This is the point of mindfulness. It's not simply to be attentive. Attentive, but to what end? To have a sudden realization about something, about impermanence? That would be nice. But primarily in the end, the most important quality is the first noble truth. There's suffering. The whole thing is there's a problem, the suffering. It's ultimately about ridding ourselves of this dukkha. The other two factors are actually subordinate to that. Anicca and anatta are subordinate. They're hooked into our suffering. They're problematic to our suffering. But the whole central issue is that human suffering. Why do we suffer? Why couldn't we be happier? Impermanence comes up even in the positive mental states. But it doesn't mean in any way whatsoever that positive emotional states are somehow equivalent to negative ones. It doesn't mean that they're all just impermanent and so you're supposed to be kind of detached from both. Wrong. Wrong. That's a very, very common mistake. I hear even seasoned Buddhists say that. They have a misunderstanding there. It's very clear that the seven factors of enlightenment do not have any of those negative states in them. There are none. They're all positive, and they continue to be present in the enlightened person's emotional structure. Yet they're impermanent, aren't they? They're impermanent in the sense that they rotate but you never fall out of them. There's no relapsing from these things. You do not regress from this. There's a spectrum of positive emotions which you are always going to remain in for as long as you exist. The door to the lower difficulties is closed now. Other more sophisticated inquiries about what ultimately happens when an arahant dies and so forth, we set aside for now as not part of this questioning. These positive states are to be aspired to, not wished for, aspired to. We aspire to them by putting in the causes for them, and we look forward to the arrival of these very positive emotional states 
that are better than we might imagine. First jhana is quite often reported as a tears of joy experience. The burdens of life are lifted. You realize you're free of something and you're never going back. That's an incredible emotional arrival. Now, never going back is the idea of a stage of enlightenment, but even to have caught the idea of being free of these harassments for a period of time, to arrive at a place where you can be free of these harassments, just on the edge of some quality of samadhi, is such a beautiful spin on life. Maybe a child would accept it as, well, why would you think it would be any other way? But as soon as you get past about 15 years old, you start to tell yourself, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of this. It's just a matter of survival at this point. I'm burdened. I'm destined. I'm fated to this tangle. But if you find your way into something through following the path that gives you glimpses of true freedom, which are quite disconnected from the environment around you, that is a life-changing experience. It's a perspective-changing experience. These are the possibilities which arise in breath meditation if we can lay down the preliminaries and not get too full of doubts and worries and fears about whether I'm doing it perfectly. We trust that if the Buddha is vague about the instructions, there is a margin of possibilities about how to do this. That doesn't mean anything is okay, but that this gentle experience of the air element is a remarkable and free and portable gizmo that goes everywhere with you. Better than a cell phone. It's just a means to an end. Never think of the breath itself as the point of the exercise. The words Anapanasati Sutta make it sound like mindfulness of breathing is something mystically important. Nah, nothing important about the breath. Nothing. It's your mind, stupid. (laughs) It's the mind. It's your heart. It's got nothing to do with the breath. It's like talking to your kids on the phone. It's not the phone. It's who you're talking to that is important. Of course, you can read whole websites about phones and all the gizmos, how many gigahertz this and that. People get caught up with the thing itself. But it's just about what you can do with it. It's where it connects you to, isn't it? Breath meditation is just that. It's an amazingly simple device that connects you to the supernormal, the profound, something beyond what normal people are going to experience in their lives. Once we get to samadhi, it's not a normal experience. You can easily live your whole life. The Buddha says lots of people can live to be a hundred, but a minute of this is worth a hundred years of negligence. Just putting in your time existing is not worth it. There's no real value in the ordinary, undisciplined, negligent type of experience of life. It's not a good way to pass the time. Sometimes when you go to a retreat and you're tangled up and your knees hurt and you're hungry and you didn't sleep, you think, what the hell am I doing? It's worth it. We're not here to make you uncomfortable or anything like that. We're just setting up a nice, simple environment. The purpose is not to see how much you can take. It's not an Olympic event. But sometimes it's not immediate gratification either. If you want immediate gratification, you'll get it, but at such a low level, it's hardly worth getting. 
the ordinary person might say, oh, oh, another bag of vinegar potato chips? And then there's the aftertaste of that. You wish you'd never done it. It's such a trivial experience the way ordinary people are living their lives. Very trivial, very low. Remember, the Buddha is leaving a palace. He says, I had it in spades. I had the best food, the best of things. And I still didn't think it amounted to much. And he also says, but definitely stay away from that pain thing. It's not going to lead you where you want to go either. We want something more. This life is not enough. We want more. And the Buddha is saying, please, ask for more. But know how it arrives. Learn that there are systematic structures and techniques which allow abundance to arrive. The breath is a royal road to this. There are other techniques, of course, but the breath is generally very approachable and always with you and something you can cultivate. So it's very important that you know about it and spend a good deal of time working with it and do not give up on it too soon. <laughs> 